Before they let us become priests, we go to school, seminary, to study scripture and church history and worship and theology. And by the time we graduate, each of us has developed for ourselves a pretty well-cooked theology. That way, when you ask us questions like, what is the virgin birth and how does resurrection work again? We're ready. Not always with the answers because the realm of faith is so much mystery. But at least we're ready to talk about these things with you because we've grappled with the ideas ourselves. By the end of seminary, my theology was pretty well cooked, I thought, allowing all the same for the vast tracts of mystery that remain for all of us. But lately, I'm happy to report that my understanding is expanding. For instance, some of you heard me preach at the cathedral a few weeks ago on Ascension Day. That's the day that we remember Jesus ascending into heaven to be, as we say, at the right hand of God. Never mind that God may or may not have a hand and that heaven isn't necessarily up, but you get the idea. And I realized as I was preparing that sermon that I did not have a theology of ascension. I don't know how that slipped through the net, but I didn't. I'd never really thought about how Jesus gets to heaven or what he does there, at least not beyond what we say every week in the Nicene Creed. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. But I am very lucky to have many brilliant colleagues here at St. James. So I reached out to one of them, Father Lee Walker, and asked him, as casually as I could, why does Jesus' ascension to heaven matter for us? And in response, he blew my mind with a mini crash course on ascension theology. He has one. And first, he reminded me that Jesus, through his life and his sacrifice, holds us, holds me, holds you, holds everyone in our totality. All of what we are, Jesus holds. Think about that. And so when Jesus ascended to heaven, he brought with him the, the complete totality, totality of all of us, of all human beings, of human nature itself into the family of God. And that means that we are united with God now in unity with the Trinity already in heaven and on earth. <laughs> Maybe you all already knew that, but I mean, it's just been cooking. There's been more cooking. And I love this idea that we are part of God, the God who made us now and always because of how we're held by Christ. And it reminds me of a Mayan proverb, which is so beautiful. It says, the roots of all things are holding hands. And, and I imagine that we are holding hands with the community of God 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this holding hands isn't a someday thing, it's, it's already begun. This holding hands is eternity now. We dwell in glory now, even as we live out our complicated lives on earth. I find this thrilling to think about the Trinity and eternity now. And listen to how the poet John O'Donohue takes a swing at this and takes it even further. He writes, eternity is not an extension of time, but it is pure presence, pure belonging. When you are in the eternal, you are outside of nothing. You are within everything, engaging in the fullest participation. There is no more, he says, separation. No more separation. That's what eternity feels like. That's how close we are to the triune God. So let's think about what that might feel like. If you ever had a day, a day in your life, one of those perfect days that you will never forget, or maybe it was just a perfect moment in a day, and you felt like that moment or that day held everything you love, all the meaning, I think everybody's had that experience. And it's like the poet William Blake in those famous lines, to see the world in a grain of sand and heaven and a wildflower, to hold infinity in your palm and eternity in an hour. Incredibly, every moment can be this way if we hold on to that level of awareness, even though we humans can barely sustain this kind of focus, but it's, but it's there. <laughs> One of the monks that I, I love to follow, he puts it well. He says, we're invited by the breath of the Holy Spirit to recognize the miracle of our own aliveness in this and every moment. The breath of the Holy Spirit reminding us of our aliveness in this and every moment. But again, it's hard to do. It's more like we get glimpses. Instead, we get swept away by our lives and the pressures and demands and, and priorities of this world. But something happens to us if we fall asleep to this kind of awareness, if we, if we fall asleep completely, we end up sleepwalking through our lives. And I'm haunted by how powerfully this danger is expressed by a Hasidic rabbi who warns, let me not die while I'm still alive. 
you know people like that, right? Who are already dead. And we want them to be alive. We want everyone to be alive. And all this talk about eternity as something happening now, if we can only notice what all these writers and religious thinkers are, are saying, it feels to me incredibly important. It makes me realize that aliveness is another way of talking about the Trinity. Because the Trinity is this dynamic community of aliveness and eternal meaning that we belong to now and forever. I know, these are big ideas. <laughs> For me anyway, my, mind, my mind's at its outer limits. Aliveness is the awareness that our lives, even our everyday lives, hold such rich meaning. Even people who wouldn't say that they believe in God, when they stop and notice, they can feel the transcendence. They can feel that something more is there feeling the transcendence. And this is, a, this is a far cry from my old theology of the Trinity. I used to focus on how there's these three partners in the Trinity and it's too bad that one gets more attention than the other. Some people focus on God and ignore Jesus and other people are very Jesus-y and best friends with Jesus and don't talk about the Father and everybody seems to neglect the Holy Spirit even though the Holy Spirit is an equal partner. So that's where I used to be in thinking about the Trinity. How can they all be equally valued by us? And, and, and I especially used to feel sorry for the Holy Spirit for getting left out so often in our thinking instead of seeing the Holy Spirit as the source of infinite guidance and strength. The kind of strength that we hear about in Paul's letter this morning when, when he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Or when Jesus says in, God's, in John's gospel that you heard me read, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. So on this Trinity Sunday, I am beginning to understand more deeply and I hope for this, for you too, the wellspring of love and information that flows from the Trinity of God, that are the Trinity. And at the same time, I still sense that I'm in the territory of dense mystery. <laughs> now, Father Lee, my consultant, said that one of his seminary professors once told their class that the best sermon ever preached on a Trinity Sunday went something like this. The Trinity is not meant to be understood, nor is such understanding possible for human beings. The Trinity is simply meant to be adored, worshipped, and passionately loved. And then this professor went on to say, end of sermon. <laughs> so that's not quite my end. I want to add <laughs> that
that as Jesus says goodbye to his friends in the passage that you heard me read this morning, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit, they will guide you into all truth. So in the same way, I think we'll come to understand more and more and more. And in the meantime, we will just adore. Amen.